0: church and into this building this morning. My name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to see a room full of diversity after a week at the beach with a bunch of empty nester retirees who told us our children were beautiful for six straight days, which was awesome, but I like diverse crowds. So this is awesome. Glad you're here. Um, As I mentioned before, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors. Um, If you're new here, we'd love to connect with you after the service. Um, learn more about what what got you connected to Cross Point. Um, particularly, even if you moved from outside of the area into the area, what brought you here? Uh, maybe tell you a little bit more about our church. But, but for the time being, uh, we're going to open up the Bible together. Uh, this is week two in a new sermon series that we began. Obviously, last week, if it's week two this week, that means last week was week one in the book of Hebrews. Uh, a series entitled "Jesus is Greater," and, and uh, I, I don't know how you would answer this question. What's your favorite book of the Bible? Uh, If that's even weird to you, if you feel like we're not allowed to answer that question, like you're supposed to love all of them so you can't have ones that are higher up on the the, the org chart, so to speak, than others. But if it's allowed, I would say the book of Hebrews is one of my favorite books of the Bible, not only because it's a beautiful literary work on its own, but because the the book of Hebrews, as, as you'll see as we work our way through it, helps us to see how the entirety of the Bible is weaved together into this one glorious overarching story of redemption with Jesus as the hero of the whole thing. The book of Hebrews explains the relationship between the the old covenant that God made with Israel and the new covenant established by Jesus' death in greater detail than any other book of the Bible. The book of Hebrews unpacks the humanity of Jesus in a way that no other book of the Bible does, including the explanation of why Jesus had to be fully human and the fact that Jesus faced temptation just like we do. We'll get there a few weeks from now. The book of Hebrews presents us with warnings that remind us that the Christian life is not a life of easy believism, where you you declare, I prayed this prayer back in the day, so I'm good to go. I'm just going to coast until my death or until Jesus returns. Rather, this book of the Bible presents us with the reality that present tense perseverance in the faith authenticates one's past tense profession of faith. Karen Jobes, in her commentary, she says this. She says, Have you ever grown bored with Christianity and been tempted to experiment with a a new, more glamorous religion? Would you go to church this Sunday if you knew there was a high risk you would be arrested by hostile authorities on your way? Have you ever been mocked for your Christian faith and tempted to quietly distance yourself from Jesus Christ? Has the thought ever gone through your mind that because you once said the sinner's prayer and meant it, that it now matters little how you live for Christ since you have your ticket to heaven? Judging from the exhortations in the book of Hebrews, the Christians to whom it was originally addressed may have faced issues like these. At its heart, I mentioned this last week, the book of Hebrews is a word of exhortation. The author of Hebrews says it himself in chapter 13, verse 22. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. It's a a warning. It's an appeal. It's why you have that language of bearing with. Warnings punctuate this entire book. They shape the doctrinal teaching of the book. Apostasy is a real threat. Apostasy meaning to renounce one's Christian faith in rejection of the, the person and work of Jesus Christ, which is why you have verses like chapter two, verse one. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Uh, chapter three, verse six, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Chapter three, verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And and there's so many more warnings found in the book of Hebrews. We'll get to to the first of those next Sunday. And these warnings are, are not just for those within the Christian population who are not really followers of Jesus. They're also God's grace in helping those of us who are Christ followers to persevere in the faith, to keep fighting the good fight of faith. And so we're not... We're not talking about a book that declares the supremacy of Jesus Christ with a few warning passages sprinkled in for good measure. That's not what the book of Hebrews is. The warnings are at the very heart of the book. They're meant to spur us on to keep fixing our eyes on Jesus. I mentioned this word picture last week. If you go back to the Old Testament, you take the the first wilderness generation of Israel who was brought out of Egypt and baptized into Moses in the Red Sea. We, We know if you read that story that most of that first wilderness generation didn't make it into the promised land. They failed to trust God and they did not enter into his rest. If you take that that wilderness language and apply it to the New Testament church, Jesus has inaugurated a new wilderness wandering for a new covenant people. You and I, we're on a pilgrimage together. We're to be brought into his eternal rest, but but some of those who are part of the visible gathering of God's people will not enter that rest. And because we haven't crossed the finish line yet, none of us, the author of Hebrews declares to us the urgency of continuing to fix our eyes on Jesus. And so it's a warning both not to look back in your wilderness pilgrimage as the church, but also to look up to the one who has traversed the wilderness on our behalf, Jesus Christ himself. The book of of Hebrews teaches us so many things about the supremacy of Christ. If you were here last week, you heard many of those things. You're going to hear more of them this morning, that Jesus is greater than the prophets and the angels, all of the human and divine messengers of God who have gone before him. He's greater than fallen man. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Aaron. He's the the greater and ultimate high priest. He mediates a greater covenant. He offers a greater sacrifice, namely himself, in a greater tabernacle, heaven. All of these things we're going to unpack in the months to come as we work our way through this book of the Bible. But, But the ultimate thing that this book brings into view as it pertains to Jesus is this. That Jesus, as exalted high priest in heaven lives to do something that he could not do while here on planet earth. Namely, as high priest in heaven, he brings sons and daughters like you and me to glory and rest in the presence of God. As a a professor of mine recently said, he said, The central theological concern of the book of Hebrews is that we have in heaven a resurrected and high priest who ministers for the church in heavenly places. That, that's good news. This book of the Bible, yes, it's meant to sober us, but it's also meant to, to bring us great comfort and joy at the same time. And so my hope as a result of this series for each and every one of us is that we become more and more mesmerized by this Jesus. And so with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Hebrews chapter 1. We'll be in verses 5 through 14 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be one underneath one of the rows in front of you. Uh, Underneath the seat, you can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, you have a difficult translation in your possession, take that Bible, church's gift to you, enjoy it. As you're opening up to this morning's passage, um, let me just share something from the past week. Uh, My family and I, I mentioned we went on vacation. We went down to St. George Island, down in the Gulf. Really quiet little uh, coastal town, a lot of fishing villages. It's not the land of mini golf and go-karts. It's a place you go when you have two toddlers so that you can actually breathe a little bit, rest, relax. Um, And if you don't know our family, we do have two toddlers. And so our life most of the time is a human tornado. We haven't slept in three years. And so uh, when we go on vacation, we like to rest and sleep. And so uh, we were at the beach uh, this past week, from uh, Sunday through Saturday, just came back uh, yesterday. And uh, my oldest daughter, her name's Lanier, uh, she, uh, she would go out uh, into the waves and, and pick up shells and, and just enjoyed playing and, and basking in nature uh, in, in a number of ways. But, but something unique happened on Wednesday night. Um, for for the, the past several months, she's adopted this fascination with the moon. And we're not really sure she had ever actually seen the moon. She had read stories about the moon. She owns the book Goodnight Moon. There's a uh, there's a movie on Netflix uh, entitled The Very Hungry Caterpillar. And there's a, a follow-up. It's And Other Stories. And one of those other stories is a story about a dad who uh, tries to grab the moon for his daughter and bring it down so that she could, could hold it in her possession. And so my daughter loves the moon. She thinks the moon is great. But... We were on a walk on Wednesday evening. The sun had not yet set. The sun was was over to our left. The ocean was on, wait a minute, the sun was over on our right, Lord help me i've been on vacation too far too long uh, and, and the ocean was on our left, and it, you know most of us were we're fascinated with sunrises and sunsets, particularly at the beach and so i'm looking to my right and all of a sudden, I hear my daughter start screaming, "Daddy, daddy, it's the moon it's the moon daddy and and, and she saw it. We think for the first time that she's ever actually seen it in all of its splendor the real moon. And you can ask my wife this, for the next three days, she would not stop talking about the moon. Mesmerized by it. So that part of our family routine for for the remainder of the trip was to go out after dinner and to go for a walk on the beach so that she could scream, daddy, daddy, it's the moon, over and over and over again until she was blue in the face and I didn't want to hear it anymore. (laughs) That's what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's saying, Look at Jesus, isn't he glorious? No, 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 look at Jesus, isn't he glorious? No, 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 you're not looking at Jesus, you took your eyes off, look, look at Jesus again, isn't he, isn't he glorious? Which caused me this week to stop for a moment and to confess to God that I'm not sure I have full trust in his word, because there's this part of me that doesn't like books of the Bible like this, if I'm honest, from a preaching vantage point. Because there's not enough of a do this sort of bent to it. It's not even until you get to chapter 12. We'll be in March of 2018 before we start getting to commands, imperatives in the book of Hebrews. And, and, and for me, it's this, this angst of... But can I really keep preaching that Jesus is glorious and supreme? And are people really going to embrace that? Are they going to bask in that? And I was reminded this week that we're not talking about the moon. We're talking about the one who created the moon and holds it in the sky. That's Jesus Christ. We're talking about the one that loves you so much that he would spill his blood for you. He's far more supreme than the moon. And we get to talk about him as a church for months now. And so that's the heart. That's what we're going after for the next several months. My hope is that we would more and more become a church that would grow in wide-eyed wonder, that we would become more like children in that regard and could not help ourselves in declaring, look at Jesus, look at him, look at him, isn't he, isn't he glorious? To the point that people would go, would you just stop talking about him? And we would go, I can't, he's amazing. And so let me pray for us and we'll jump into this glorious book of the Bible that declares the supremacy of Jesus Christ. God, thank you for revealing yourself to us, for giving us the scriptures so that we're we're not left with nothing more than nature, with nothing more than the cosmos. We, We can know with certainty the one who made the moon and the stars and who hung them in the sky and who holds them up. By the word of his power. The the one who would enter into his very creation in order to redeem fallen man. We can know the story. We have it right in front of us. And the book of Hebrews tells it so beautifully. So God, I pray that you would would draw us to our knees in confession this morning. For one, declaring that, that we're not as mesmerized as we should be. Based on who you are and what you've done for us, we're just... We're not, but that we could say, thank you, Jesus, for dying for our our failure to be mesmerized as we should, that you spilled your blood for that too, and that that would all the more mesmerize us, and that we would be like wide-eyed children as as we leave this place week in and week out, as we live out this thing called the Christian life, as we continue the good fight of faith. Would you fill us with wonder? God, we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you go back to last week, we spent some some time in the first four verses of of chapter one of this book of the Bible. The introductory paragraph meant to set the stage for the the rest of the book. Arguably the the four most power-packed verses in all of scripture, just just kind of brought together in this power-packed punch. Those, Those four brief verses tell us that That the God of Christianity is a God who speaks. That that in the days prior to Jesus' entrance onto the human stage, God spoke in a number of ways. We talked about this last week. He he spoke in acts of mercy and judgment, making sense of those acts through the prophets. He spoke in a, a storm to Moses on one occasion in a burning bush on another occasion. He spoke in a still, small voice to Elijah he spoke in dreams to Daniel, and there's so many other ways that God spoke prior to Jesus' entrance onto the scene, but but all of those moments of divine revelation didn't communicate everything that God had to say in its fullness. And so in Jesus. As we looked at those first four verses, we saw that God has said everything he needs to say. That Jesus is God's ultimate and final message to mankind. He's the final revelation of God. That the Old Testament is all about the foreshadowing of the promised hero in Genesis chapter 3. The one who would slay the darkened dragons of Satan's sin and death. So that when the promised hero shows up and saves the princess, there's nothing more to tell. The story has now been told. God has spoken. Jesus is the revealing of God To a world filled with people who are searching for God. In a few brief verses, the the author of Hebrews tells us a great deal about this Jesus. Not only is is Jesus greater than the prophets, he's the rightful heir of all things as our sin conquering, death conquering, Satan conquering, triumphant king, going back to verse two. Not only that, Jesus is creator of the very inheritance that is his as our triumphant king. Pre-existent deity. Jesus existed long before the manger scene in Bethlehem. Eternal, timeless, self-existent, self-sufficient, dependent on nothing, on no one. Involved in this beautiful intra-Trinitarian dance with God the Father and God the Spirit since before time began. And as if that wasn't enough, the author of Hebrews in those first four verses declares that Jesus is the radiance of God, the visible revelation of God's splendor and majesty, that when you look at Jesus, you're looking at the glory of God. Similar to how we know the sun by virtue of its light and heat, we know the glory of God by Jesus' embodiment of, of that glory, his radiance of that glory. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature We talked about last week. God made visible that if you want to know how God thinks, look at how Jesus thinks in the Gospels. If you want to know how God feels, look at how Jesus feels. If you want to know how God acts, how he relates to people, look at how Jesus acts, how he relates to people in the Gospels. Jesus is also, according to the author of Hebrews, the one who keeps the world spinning. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He has an ongoing role in keeping the universe as we know it from falling apart, from going from cosmos to chaos. And just in case you're still not impressed, Jesus is also, according to those first four verses, the ultimate high priest who makes purification for sins through the sacrifice of himself on our behalf the one who put an end to the bloodshed of the sacrificial system through the shedding of his own blood, the one who sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high as a declarative, it is finished. In a few brief verses, the author of Hebrews essentially declares Jesus to be the perfect prophet, priest, and king, the the ultimate fulfillment of all three Old Testament offices. He's the prophet by whom God has spoken his final word, he's the priest who has offered the once for all sacrifice to cleanse us from sin, and he's the king who's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Last week, we we close with this declarative statement having to do with Jesus' superiority to the angels. Verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he, Jesus, has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, in verses 5 through 14, the author of Hebrews is going to unpack that idea in greater detail. In large part, um, when you think about angels, many people have distorted um, the, the, an understanding biblically of, of who angels are, what angels exist to do. Angels show up uh, over 100 times in the Old Testament, uh, roughly 160 times in the New Testament. Contrary to popular belief, angels are not chubby, chubby-winged babies just kind of you know, fluttering around the throne of God. That's not, uh, that's not what angels are. When angels show up in Scripture, people fall on their faces in fear. It's why typically an encounter with an angel begins with two words. Fear not. Angels are created beings. They, they they may have significant powers, but they're not on the same level with God. They were not around since before time began. They're creations of God. In most cases, angels are invisible. When they, when they are visible, they have a human-like appearance and oftentimes are mistaken for men. And on and on we could go about uh, the doctrine of angels. Angels have have a number of purposes that they serve in Scripture. Angels worship and praise God for one. That's probably the the uh, act of angels that we're most familiar with in the Bible. The Bible's filled with pictures of angels surrounding the throne of God in worship. You see some beautiful pictures of that in the Book of Revelation. Secondly, angels communicate God's message to man. They They played a part in bringing the law in Moses' day at Mount Sinai. They announced the births of both John the Baptist and Jesus. We know that angels minister to Christ followers, that angels, if you read the book of Acts, delivered the apostles from prison. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, angels are present within the church. Wrap your mind around that one right now because the church is here in this place. The Bible teaches that angels peer in on the lives of Christ followers with fascination. If you ever thought your life was boring, angels don't. They're really fascinated at at what a a redeemed life looks like. Angels are agents of God's justice. After the fall, it was an angel with a, a flaming sword placed to guard the entrance of Eden. It's the angels who will help to separate the sheep from the goats when Jesus returns. It's the angels who will execute judgment against Satan and his army of darkness as they follow Jesus, their fearless leader. Angels are fascinating beings, and yet the author of Hebrews wants us to see that angels don't hold a candle to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5. He says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. That first quote is from Psalm chapter two, verse seven. You are my son, today I have begotten you. In its original context, it was declared by the Lord's anointed in the face of enemy opposition. In a time of war, but, but it was anticipated that Psalm chapter 2 verse 7 would ultimately be fulfilled in the coming Messiah. This language of sonship, which is why when you read Luke chapter 1, Gabriel's declaration to Mary about the child she would bear, that she would bring into the world. He says this, he says, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end Again, you have that language of sonship at Jesus' baptism, Mark chapter 1, verse 11, and a voice came from heaven. This is God the Father speaking, saying, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. There's this, there's this declaration of sonship that's never been declared to any angel in these kinds of terms. In the scriptures, angels are referred to as sons of God, lowercase s, referencing them as created beings. Not only is Jesus the eternal son capital S of God, but the risen exalted Son of God. The second quote comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. In its original context, it was God's declaration over David's son, Solomon, the one who would build the temple for God in the Old Testament. But again, it was anticipated that 2 Samuel chapter seven would ultimately be fulfilled in the coming Messiah, Jesus, that Jesus is the son of David whose throne shall be established forever. And so you could say it this way. The summary of verse five is this. Angels are declared to be sons of God Jesus is declared to be the son of God, divine. Moving on to verse six, he continues the argument. He says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Here you have a quote coming from Deuteronomy chapter 32, a passage that has to do with angels worshiping Yahweh. The author of Hebrews is declaring Jesus to be worthy of worship in much the same way Yahweh is worthy of worship. Not only is he the son of God, verse 5, but he is to be worshipped by angels, verse 6. He has authority and dominion over angels as sovereign, exalted king of the universe. So that, the summary of verse 6 would be this. Angels are worshipers of God. Jesus is to be worshipped. He's the object of worship. The argument continues. Verse 7, of the angels, he says he makes his angels' winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Verse 7 is, you could say it's a declaration of the role of angels on the org chart. It's a quoting of Psalm 104. It's a declaration that the angels do God's bidding. Verses 8 through 12 are going to show us Jesus' role on the org chart in contrast. Look at verse 8. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Verse 10 And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Look at, look at verses 8 and 9. There, there you have a quoting of Psalm 45, which is a psalm celebrating a royal wedding. It's the addressing of a bridegroom king with the use of divine language. The ultimate fulfillment, again, and if you are around for the the series in the book of Psalms, you you see where we're going here. They all point to Jesus, that he is the fulfillment, the ultimate bridegroom and king of kings. Verses 10 through 12 provide us with yet another Old Testament quotation from Psalm 102. It's a passage that declares the the eternality of God. He's the alpha and the, the omega, the beginning and the end. The author of Hebrews takes that passage from Psalm 102 and he applies it to Jesus, saying Jesus is the eternal one. To him belongs the throne. To him belongs the scepter. He is the alpha. He is the omega. So that you could say the summary of verses 7 through 12 is this. Angels are created beings who do God's bidding. Jesus is eternal God and Lord who created those very angels who do his bidding. He closes the argument In verse 13, saying this, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This final Old Testament quote comes from Psalm 110 has to do with the king's enthronement and the promise of victory over all his enemies. But again, its ultimate fulfillment is found in Jesus. The death blow was delivered at the cross of Jesus Christ and there's a day coming in which all of God's enemies will be fully and ultimately wiped away. The angels have never been given the right to sit at the right hand of the Almighty. The angels are not the ones who will authoritatively lead the charge in setting all things right in the end. That's Jesus's authoritative right. And so he goes on to say in verse 14, are they, the angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? In other words, and this is mind-boggling to me, the angels get the honor and privilege of serving those human beings who love and follow Jesus. Think about that if you're a Christian for a second. The angels are not, um, I, I, I don't, I don't know what that all entails. I, I, I sat with that uh, this week for for a little while, and my head just started to hurt, so I stopped. And then I picked up a couple systematic theology books and thought maybe I'm I'm rusty on my angelology, so I just need to go back and read and, and be reminded of what angels do. And, and it just even systematic theology books can't can't do justice to to this idea that angels serve those who love and follow Jesus, according to verse 14. But but here's the deal: that's not really the point of it all. It's not for us to try to unearth and get behind the curtain, so to speak, to see what it is that angels do in all of their fullness. The point of this passage is that there's a distinct difference between angels and Jesus. That when you look at verses 13 and 14, you're meant to see the following distinction, that angels are God's servants who minister to people like you and me who will inherit salvation. Jesus is God's exalted king seated on the throne of heaven. So that the unwavering declaration of this morning's passage is, is simply Jesus is superior. It's, it's look at the moon, daddy. Isn't it glorious? But, but Jesus is all the more glorious than the moon, as the author of Hebrews declares. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, says it this way. He says, Christ is superior to angels because he has a superior name. His is son. A superior honor. All the angels worship him. A superior vocation. He is sovereign king. A superior existence. His is eternal and unchangeable. A superior status. He rules the universe. Such that Jesus is to be marveled at. If you're looking for application this morning. Significance for you. As as we walk away from verses 5 through 14 of Hebrews chapter 1. You really could declare that the application of this morning's. Passage in this morning's sermon is simply marvel, marvel. Be amazed at this Jesus. Be mesmerized by this Jesus. Fall at his feet and worship him as both eternal son of God and risen son of God. Declare your allegiance to the one who commands angels to do his bidding. We cannot divorce Jesus as savior from Jesus as Lord and king. The author of Hebrews refuses to do that. I'm certain I've said this before that many of us when we come face to face with Jesus will find out that we did not have a two-tiered story of salvation in our lives where Jesus was our savior at one point and eventually became our lord later in life that, that that's not how salvation works you can't divorce the lordship and kingship of Christ from Jesus as redeemer and savior the author of Hebrews does not do he refuses to do that every morning we're faced with the question will I confess Jesus as lord today Will I functionally bend my knee to him as risen king today? Will I believe the gospel today? The Christian life is a life of confessing and believing. Like my daughter. Yes, I declared the moon was marvelous on Wednesday. But it's Thursday, daddy. It's time to talk about how marvelous the moon is yet again. Because it's a new day. Every time we display our confidence in Jesus, we acknowledge his supreme worth. And, And here's the amazing thing. This exalted king who commands the angels to do his bidding loves you with an unfathomable love. The moon doesn't love my daughter. That's a one-sided relationship. Jesus Christ deeply, deeply loves you. The reason we can declare him to be the risen son of God is because he was the crucified son of God. He lived the life we could never live. He died the death we deserve to die. We talk about it all the time around here. A sinner's death as our substitute. Our sins were put upon him. He was punished in our place. He spilled his precious blood as a ransom for sinners like you and me. But he didn't stay dead. He conquered our great enemies of Satan, sin, and death. He's been exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high. If you're not a follower of Christ, man, right now, Fall at his feet, declare him Savior and King, become a Christ follower. And if you are, let me just heap encouragement. On top of encouragement, if you fast forward to chapter four of the book of Hebrews, listen to what the author says about this risen son of God we've been talking about all morning. He uses this sonship language. Listen to these words. Hebrews chapter four, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. There's the language of, of chapter one. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, with confidence, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This Jesus, who is superior to the angels, does not sit on his throne as a cruel tyrant. His throne is approachable. It's a throne of grace. It's a throne that you can approach with confidence. Think about that. You can confidently approach the throne of the one who commands angels to do his bidding. That's crazy. He wants you to approach his throne of grace. It's mind-blowing to me to think that the one who commands the angels not only can sympathize with you and me, He cares for us deeply. He wants to come alongside of us to help us to to fight this good fight of faith, to help us to persevere, to run the race. Not only is he committed to pouring out his mercy and grace on us in our time of need, he's committed to commanding the very angels over whom he exercises superiority to minister to you, to minister to me. When we get to chapter 2, We'll get an even better understanding of how Jesus feels about us if you haven't picked up on it yet. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, the author of Hebrews will declare. He loves us, and thus he commands the host of heaven to minister to us. Again, please don't ask me to make sense of that for you. I can't do it. All I know is that Jesus loves us so much that he's commanding angels to serve and care for us in ways unseen maybe that's part of the joy of heaven I've got I got a lot of conversations I want to have with uh heroes of the faith who have gone before me I want to sit down with Jesus talk about a lot of things one of those I think will be I, I want you to tell me about all the ways that uh, that you commanded the heavenly host to minister to me what did that look like Jesus that's gotta be crazy is there a big enough cup of coffee in the world that we could have that dialogue what does that look like A.W. Pink, in his commentary, he, he says it this way. I love this. He says, It should awaken within us a sense of wonderment. The angels are portrayed as our attendants. When we remember who and what they are, their exalted rank in the scale of being, their sinlessness, their wondrous capacities, knowledge, and powers, it is surely an astonishing thing to learn that they should minister to us. Think of it. The unfallen angels, he says, waiting upon the fallen descendants of Adam. Could you imagine the princes of the royal family seeking out dwellers in the slums and ministering to them, not once or occasionally, but constantly? But the analogy altogether fails. The angels of God are sent forth to minister unto redeemed sinners. Marvel at it. And how's this for comfort? The angels minister to God's redeemed even unto death If you read about the the story of the rich man and Lazarus in in Luke chapter 16, we're told this, that the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. That's pretty cool. A.W. Pink goes on to say this. He says, to our natural feelings, a a deathbed scene is often a most painful and distressing experience. There we behold a helpless creature emaciated by disease, convulsed with pain Panting for breath, his countenance pallid, his lips quivering, his brow bedewed with a cold sweat. But were not the spiritual world hidden from us by a veil of God's appointing, we should also see there the glorious inhabitants of heaven surrounding the bed. He's talking about angels here. Waiting for God's summons to convoy that soul from earth through the territory of Satan up to the Father's house. There they are, ready to perform their last office in ministering for those who shall be heirs of salvation. Then, Christian, why fear death? Jesus is so good. He loves you so much. He cares for you so much. And so the invitation this morning is is very simple. It's marvel at his glory. Marvel at his sovereignty. Marvel at his majesty. And also marvel at his love. Marvel at his care. Marvel at his grace. And as you respond in worship of the Son of God through singing in the moments to come, Let let this thought run through your mind. When you lift your voice, just a few moments from now, when you lift your voice, not only are you joining brothers and sisters who love and follow Jesus, you're also joining with innumerable angels, myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Let, Let that thought overwhelm you with reverence and joy as you sing in this place, this makeshift auditorium that angels would join in with your singing. He doesn't need our song, Jesus, but we get the honor, we get the privilege, we, we get the blessing of lifting our voices to the risen, exalted Son of God this morning.